This episode of Local Knowledge is presented by Dow. 144 players, 72 teams, one incredible event. July 12th through the 17th, the Dow Great Lakes Bay Invitational returns to Midland, Michigan for a week packed with excitement for the whole family. The world's best female golfers are pairing off to compete in a 72-hole team-style event. It's the only one of its kind on the LPGA Tour. Fans can also join in on the fun at activities throughout the week, from the First Tee Junior Clinic to the locally focused Eat Great Food Trail and Beer Garden. This year, the legacy of sustainability and community impact teed up at the 2019 Dow GLBI lives on through initiatives like waste reduction, upcycled products, food rescue, and more. Consider your ticket and agreement to help us leave the course and the world in better shape than we started. Buy your tickets today on DowGLBI.com, DowGLBI.com, and follow at DowGLBI on social media for tournament updates, ticket information, and TV times. We can't wait to welcome you to the Great Lakes Bay region for the 2021 Dow GLBI. It's just a natural thing. Uh, and I don't know how to articulate that or how to explain it, but it's just been going on for centuries and centuries that men like to get together with men every now and then, and women like to get together with women every now and then. And that's just a simple fact of life in America. That was former Augusta National Chairman Hootie Johnson speaking in 2002, defending his club's single-sex membership. After nearly 80 years of having only men as members, Augusta National probably the most famous golf club in the world, and also probably the one most closely associated with exclusion, would eventually invite women members in 2012. That might sound late, but it was actually two years earlier than the RNA, the oldest ruling body in golf and the British counterpart to the USGA, began to allow women as members. The host venue for this week's Open Championship, Royal St. George's, was all male for the first 130 years of its existence. And while Augusta National always permitted women to play the course and hang out in club buildings, Royal St. George's wasn't always so accommodating. In 1988, the best women amateur golfers from the US, Great Britain, and Ireland arrived to Royal St. George's to play in the Curtis Cup. And they were greeted there by a sign. It read, no women or dogs in the clubhouse. The sign was removed ahead of the 2011 Open Championship at Royal St. George's, but it wasn't until 2015, when they were under threat of losing their status as an Open Championship venue, that Royal St. George's membership voted to end its all-male policy. Up until about two months ago, Golf Digest's number one course in America didn't permit women as members and only allowed them to play the club on Sunday afternoons. A classic Pine Valley story involves Jack Nicklaus, who wanted to play the course while honeymooning with his new bride, Barbara. Only Barbara wasn't allowed on the premises, so she drove around the exterior of the club while her new husband played, catching only glimpses of him through the trees. Sixty-odd years later, on April 30th, 2021, that all changed. You may have seen over the weekend, after more than a hundred years, Pine Valley will welcome female members and unrestricted women's play. The club elaborated on its decision in an email to its membership, and a couple lines in that email really stuck out. The first one, the future of golf must move toward inclusion. And the second, we want to be proud of Pine Valley in all respects, and I'm convinced this change puts the club on the right side of history. 
That letter, it would seem, is an acknowledgement of changing times and rapidly shifting attitudes towards entities that keep people out. The last year or so has been a tipping point for issues of diversity and inclusion in this country. Every company, every industry, has had to look inwardly and ask themselves if they're fostering an inclusive environment, and golf is no different. We've seen governing bodies be proactive about engaging marginalized communities, added support for the APGA Tour, a push to amplify women's golf. In the current zeitgeist, it is increasingly difficult for male-only clubs and their members, who are often leaders of the very businesses that are pushing diversity initiatives, to justify their stance or to fly under the radar like they have in years past. And yet, male-only golf clubs still exist. There's Butler National and Bobo Link and Old Elm and Black Sheep Golf Club near Chicago. There's Preston Trail in Dallas, Lochinvar in Texas. There's Burning Tree in Maryland, Garden City in New York, the Plantation in California. The number is shrinking, but they still exist. I'm Dan Rappaport, and this is Local Knowledge, the Golf Digest podcast that takes a deep dive into the most compelling stories in golf. Today's episode will focus on a hot-button topic, the world of the all-male golf club. A quick note before we dive in. The purpose of this podcast is not to be a sweeping indictment of golf's past and present. What we will discuss is the origin of all-male golf clubs, how they fit into larger golf culture, the scandals that put golf's exclusionary practices into the spotlight, the growing momentum against these all-male golf clubs, and whether the ones that still do exist can survive. The first thing you should know about all-male golf clubs is that there are different levels to them. Some, like Augusta National back in the day, always permitted women on the grounds and to play the golf course, although often only during certain times. Other clubs wouldn't, and still don't, let them even on the premises, full stop. According to one famous story, an airplane made an emergency crash landing near the 18th hole of one of these all-male clubs. A woman on board who survived was, according to legend, promptly taken to the front gate, for she was not allowed to enter the clubhouse even after a plane crash. The second thing you should know about all-male golf clubs is that no matter how you feel about them morally, they're not illegal. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, and national origin. And Title VII of the Act also prohibits employers from discriminating on the basis of sex. This applies to any sort of government operation, but also private businesses, so long as they are open to or interact with the general public. It's very vague. But the Civil Rights Act and its Title VII do not have jurisdiction over private membership clubs, because private membership clubs are, by definition, not open to the public. If you're thinking, wait a minute, doesn't Augusta hold the Masters and isn't that open to the public? Your instincts are spot on, and we'll get there in a second. But for now, to summarize, Clubs are allowed to discriminate in who they allow as members because they are not open to the public and therefore not subject to the Civil Rights Act. This is how you're able to have all-female social clubs or all-black fraternities or all-male golf clubs. Or, it should be noted, all-women golf clubs. There have indeed been a few. The first club in America to be founded and managed by women was Morris County Golf Club in New Jersey, which opened in 1894. Men were permitted to join, but only as associate members, a lower status than their female counterparts. 
But the most famous all-women golf club was probably the Women's National Golf and Tennis Club. It was developed by Marion Hollins, a pioneering and highly accomplished women amateur who also developed Pasatiempo and played a huge role in building Cypress Point. In the early 1920s, members of the Creek Club in New York decided they did not want women coming to their club. So Hollins and crew acquired 176 acres of land and built their own club. The woman-only venture lasted only a few years, falling victim to the Depression in the early 30s, but it lives on today as part of the Glen Head Country Club on Long Island. Morris County and Women's National, of course, are outliers. Far more common throughout the 20th century, especially at elite courses, were clubs that included all-male, all-white memberships. The stereotype of golf being the domain of rich, old, stodgy white men who want to escape their wives, it didn't just appear out of thin air. Yeah, I mean, the, the golf course has been the refuge of the, the, the bro, of the dude, the hardworking businessman, the, the overtaxed husband. Yeah, I mean, That's so longtime golf writer Alan Shipnuck, who wrote a book called The Battle for Augusta National, Hootie, Martha, and the Masters of the Universe. We'll discuss the subject matter of that book in detail just a little bit later on. It's always had that connotation and at some, some courses and clubs codified it, you know, as far as restricting access to women. Some went all the way and just went all male memberships, but um, it's just kind of a vestige from, from a, a different era, unfortunately. And it's still, it's still part of the game in some places. These businessmen, these overtaxed husbands, these dudes, they didn't just keep out women. They often kept out Catholics or Jews or, far more common, black people. Augusta National, for example, only permitted black people to work as caddies or in the club's kitchen until 1975. In his memoir, Charlie Sifford, one of the first black touring pros, quoted the club's founder, Clifford Roberts, as saying, As long as I live here, there will be nothing at the Masters besides black caddies and white players. Now, Robert's family members have disputed the accuracy of the quote, but it does convey the ethos of Augusta and similar clubs at that time. Remember, Augusta was founded in 1932, the heart of the Jim Crow South. And still, despite the racial progress of the 1960s and the Masters emerging as the premier golf tournament in America, Augusta National mainly avoided having its all-white male membership come under scrutiny. And so did other clubs all around the country. This was not a phenomenon unique to the South. The old boys kept on doing their thing, mostly unbothered, until 1990. That's when the PGA of America was set to host the PGA Championship at Shoal Creek in Alabama, which did not permit black members. Around that time, Marsha Chambers was studying golf clubs discrimination against women and minorities for a comprehensive series to be published in Golf Digest. A local Birmingham reporter, inspired by Chambers' writings, asked Shoal Creek's president, Hall Thompson, about his club's membership policies. His response lives in infamy. We don't discriminate in every other area, except the blacks. 144 players, 72 teams. Team up with the Dow Great Lakes Bay Invitational LPGA team event July 12th through the 17th. Visit DowGLBI.com, again, DowGLBI.com, and follow at DowGLBI on social media for tournament updates, ticket info, and TV times.
As a response to Thompson's comments, a number of advertisers decided they didn't want to be associated with the tournament at Shoal Creek. Total losses were set to be around $2 million. And that comment and the Shoal Creek controversy as a whole, it blew the lid off the all-white club issue. All of a sudden, golf was in the national news for an absolutely awful reason. And this went beyond sports. You had people like Joseph Lowry, the president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, weighing in. To cooperate with evil is to affirm it, he said. This honest man, Mr. Thompson, has exposed the sophisticated layer of deceit and hypocrisy that veils the racism that still exists in our society today. This shook golf to its core. The boys club culture could no longer exist in the comfortable hush-hush confines of the 19th hole. Things were going to have to change because Shoal Creek was far from alone. Here's what Jaime Diaz wrote on July 29, 1990, in a piece for the New York Times, right after Thompson's comments went public. Reeling from criticism that it holds many of its most prestigious tournaments at private clubs with all white male memberships, golf has been caught in a moral issue so powerful that the social and political vacuum in which the game has long existed has probably been altered forever. And here's Alan Shipnuck again. To the credit of the PGA of America and the PGA Tour and the United States Golf Association, they finally uh, said, okay, this cannot stand. If we're going to have our tournaments at these courses, they cannot have all white or other um, prejudiced or restricted membership practices. And so that set off a mad scramble among dozens and dozens and dozens of of courses and private clubs to uh, bring in more diverse membership. And um, th there was a, a guy named uh, Roy S. Johnson, who was a editor and writer at Sports Illustrated for a long time, African-American guy. And he said among his friends, it was a joke about being you know, in the class of 1990, because all of a sudden, if, if, you were, uh, if you were a black man who was successful in life and, and loved golf, People were coming to you. All these clubs you could never get into, now they're beating down your door because they needed to diversify their membership. So the PGA of America, the PGA Tour, and the USGA drew a line in the sand. Stop discriminating against people for their race, sex, or religion, or stop hosting tournaments. And that mad dash to seek out black members began immediately. Nine days before the 1990 PGA, Shoal Creek reached a deal with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and vowed to admit its first black member. Crooked Stick in Indiana and Bell Reeve in St. Louis, which were the next two courses set to host the PGA Championship, they had no choice but to follow suit. So did U.S. Open venues, Oakmont in Pennsylvania and Shinnecock Hills in New York. Augusta National invited its first black member, Ron Townsend, in that same year. And according to Allen's book, PGA Tour officials determined that 17, 17 of its host venues were all white, and with the new policy, that was going to have to change. Most opted to diversify, but there were a few notable exceptions. Cypress Point, which had women members but didn't have black members, gave up being one of the three host courses for the old Crosby Clambake Pro-Am because it didn't want its club policies dictated by outsiders. Butler National, outside Chicago, opted to stop hosting the Western Open after 17 years rather than admit women as the PGA Tour's new policy demanded. So the race jig was up. Clubs simply could not continue with an all-white membership. But the women's issues sort of faded into the background in the years after Shoal Creek. 
there continued to be all-male golf clubs, including Augusta National and Pine Valley. And the justification here was that having a single-sex organization is not the same thing as having a single-race organization. Along with being a Golf Digest contributor and a New Yorker staff writer, David Owen was given exclusive access to Augusta National's archives in order to write a book on the club and the Masters. Published in 1999, The Making of the Masters stands as perhaps the most comprehensive history of Clifford Roberts, Augusta National, and its tournament, and it's fair to say Owen has a more intimate knowledge of Augusta history than any other non-member. Here he is with the details on a really interesting Augusta plan that never came to fruition. Initially, their initial plan was they were going to build a second golf course, which was going to be a women's golf course. The clubhouse that they were going to build uh, after tearing down the clubhouse that we see today uh, was going to have was going to be enormous. It was like big southern mansion with big you know columns in front and uh, an immense men's locker room, but on the other in the other wing, an immense women's locker room. It never happened, of course, and Augusta's membership stayed all male. Now, in two thousand three. Owen wrote a column for Golf Digest called The Case for All Male Golf Clubs, and he stands by his writing. People get stuck on deciding that a single-sex organization is the same thing as a single-race organization, a purposely single-sex organization. Uh, but it's not, legally or otherwise. And there are many women-only uh, organizations in which, in which women talk about as you know, being more comfortable you know, in a book club or in a... Uh, uh, at a gym, in a yoga class, uh, going to a woman divorce, divorce lawyer, going to a woman gynecologist, they're more comfortable uh, going to a woman than they, are, than they would be to a man. Uh, and I think the same thing uh, with men. And it's, it's, not, it's an acknowledgement of that there are differences between people rather than a, the imposition of an artificial difference, which, which is what you have when you have separate uh, bathrooms for separate races. It's different to have, uh, you know, separate bathrooms for separate sexes. It's not, we, we uh, you know, it's not, the, it's not the same issue. And I think it's so easily in people's minds drifts into that issue that it makes it very hard to talk about. You inevitably sound, you know, you end up sounding like uh, an asshole if you say, well, you know, I don't have any problem with all male golf clubs or all female golf clubs or all female yoga classes. As you might imagine, not everyone feels similarly. I asked USA Today columnist Christine Brennan, who's been an outspoken advocate for women's issues in sports, why it's different for men to have an all-male golf club than for women to have an all-woman yoga class. The difference is that what has happened on the golf course, as I think anyone who's ever played golf knows, is that it's not just about golf, it's about the corridors of power in our country. And for generations, you were telling 50 to 51% of our population, you cannot be a part of that corridor of power. Predictably, she was not buying David's apples to apples comparison. This is not a new uh, conversation. It surprises me that someone would still trying to be advancing that conversation, frankly. I'm, I'm a little surprised it's 2021. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, he needs to understand that because that argument is just so naive in terms of what really uh, is about, this is about, which is about opportunity, it's about the advancement of women, and it's about the opportunity to participate in the most crucial and, and powerful decisions our country is making, which by the way, a lot of those things are happening still to this day on the, uh, on the grounds of, of say Augusta National or Pine Valley or other places like that. 
Christine began covering the Masters in 1999 and wasted no time bringing up the exclusionary membership practices to the men in green jackets. She'd ask Hootie Johnson questions about the membership at his annual chairman's press conference during Masters week, and each time he'd respond with some version of, this is a club matter, and club matters remain private. Brennan actually didn't attend the Masters in 2002, but that was the year she penned a hugely impactful column that set off a remarkable firestorm. The column that I wrote was about there's two kinds of discrimination in golf. One is an unacceptable discrimination, discrimination against black men, and the other is completely acceptable discrimination against women. And that column uh, appeared, again, I wasn't even at the Masters that year. I was just too busy to go and I uh, had too much going on. So, but I wrote the column anyway. And unbeknownst to me, a woman at National Airport buys USA Today, as probably a lot of people did that day. And that woman, you know her name, uh, reads the column and decides to send a private letter to Hootie Johnson. That woman's name was Martha Burke. Dr. Martha Burke was, back in 2002, the head of the National Council of Women's Organizations, a Washington, D.C.-based group that advocated for a number of different women's issues. She wasn't a golfer, nor was she particularly interested in the Masters tournament, until she picked up that newspaper. I read in USA Today a column by a female journalist uh, saying that Augusta National, still as prominent as they were then and still are, uh, was not admitting women. And it was a very small thing to me. Uh, I just um, asked my board, and I remember it so well, because we had a board meeting, we were packing up to leave, you know, getting our papers and getting out of our chairs. And I said, oh, by the way, there's this golf club I read about, and they don't allow women. Why don't we write them a letter urging them to open to women? And they all said, fine, write a letter. We didn't even vote on it. It was that trivial. The letter, which was sent to Augusta and not to the press, was only nine sentences in length. It read, in part, Our member groups are very concerned that the nation's premier golf event, the Masters, is hosted by a club that discriminates against women by excluding them from membership. And, later, We know that Augusta National and the sponsors of the Masters do not want to be viewed as entities that tolerate discrimination against any group, including women. We urge you to review your practices and policies in this regard and open your membership to women now so that this is not an issue when the tournament is staged next year. That letter landed on the desk of Hootie Johnson and he was absolutely incensed. Here was this woman who knew little about golf and even less about Augusta National having the gall to call out his club's age-old practices. Here's Alan Shipnuck again. The old boys at Augusta National always got their way, and not just in the context of the club. That's how they lived their lives, right? And so it was, uh, it was just an unprecedented breach for, for someone to question how they do things, uh, at least in Hootie Johnson's mind. And it, it goes down as the greatest uh, political miscalculation in the history of golf, that he took this private letter that he could have just filed away and no one ever heard the name Martha Burke, and he put out the, the infamous Point of a Bayonet press release and turned this into a story of national significance that completely consumed the Masters and Augusta National. After stewing on the letter for three weeks, Johnson decided not only to reply in harsh terms, but to do so publicly. He sent his reply to the press. It was like responding to a slap on the arm with a full-on form tackle. 
I'm going to read a few excerpts from this extraordinary letter. Our membership alone decides our membership, not any outside group with its own agenda. The essence of a private club is privacy. Nevertheless, the threatening tone of Dr. Burke's letter signals the probability of a full-scale effort to force Augusta National to yield to the NCWO's will. The message delivered to us was entirely coercive. We will not be bullied, threatened, or intimidated. We do not intend to become a trophy in their display case. There may well come a day when women will be invited to join our membership, but that timetable will be ours, and not at the point of a bayonet. The press had a field day with that point of a bayonet line, and discussion over it obscured Johnson's main point, which was this. Augusta was a private club, and private clubs are free to choose their membership how they see fit, which, if you recall our Civil Rights Act discussion at the beginning, it holds up legally. Johnson wanted to draw a clear distinction between Augusta National, the club, and the Masters Tournament, which, of course, led in women as patrons. Martha Burke, however, was not down for that argument. Augusta National is not in any sense, except what they claim, a private club. It is actually a for-profit corporation chartered in the state of, of um, Georgia. It holds events out to the public and it accepts money from members of the public. That disqualifies them as just a little old boys club or a poker group or something like that. Martha's argument, then, was that Augusta National should indeed be subject to anti-discrimination laws because it interacts with the general public, which makes it not a private club. And these two dug in, and they went back and forth in the media. It was a battle. Martha vs. Hootie. Martha pressured corporate sponsors to drop their support of the Masters, and Hootie countered by saying, screw them, we don't need the sponsors, we'll broadcast the tournament commercial-free. Martha began writing letters to club members, imploring them to resign, and a few of them actually did, including former CBS chairman Thomas Wyman and George Bush's nominee for Treasury Secretary, Jon Snow. The back and forth in the press, as Alan mentioned a little while ago, it did not reflect very well on Hootie Johnson. He was out to lunch. He didn't understand how media worked. He thought I was some little lady somewhere that didn't know how media worked, and boy, did he underestimate me on that. Burke organized a protest of the 2003 Masters, but she couldn't get the permit she wanted and the protest was moved to a far-off empty field, a healthy distance away from Augusta National. Her group was met by plenty of counter-protesters, including a Ku Klux Klan member, and the whole thing devolved into kind of a circus. But Martha's message, that Augusta National was depriving women of their seat at the table, a message that was initially confined to that one private letter, it had spread to the masses. Now, while certainly there was some support for the club's position, it, um, ultimately, in the court of public opinion, they, they were never going to prevail. And um, it took a little time to play out, and Hootie Johnson basically had to, to exit stage right before before they, they could bring in women members. But from, from the moment he released that press release, it was always going to happen. And um, uh, so it's just it's a phenomenal miscalculation. Only it didn't happen so fast, not for another nine more years to be exact. 
The debate reignited in 2012 when Ginny Rometty was named CEO of IBM. IBM had long been one of the main master's sponsors, and each of the prior four CEOs of the company had been members of Augusta National. Rometty wasn't a diehard golfer, but she did play, and there was a clear precedent that a man with her exact professional qualifications would be invited to join the club. Burke's organization facilitated multiple lawsuits against companies associated with Augusta for gender discrimination. And the Olympic Committee actually got involved. They were considering reinstating golf as an Olympic sport, but they couldn't be sure it satisfied the IOC's requirement of, and I quote, a sport practiced without discrimination with a spirit of friendship, solidarity, and fair play. The external pressure on Augusta was crushing. And amid wider cultural momentum for women empowerment and equality, the internal pressure likely ratcheted up as well. Here's Augusta expert David Owen once again. It's from pressure by the members that, you know, there's clubs like Augusta National, but they have a lot of members who are, um, you know, big deals in business. And it's, it's hard for them on boards and facing uh, other employees uh, to continue to belong to these clubs that, uh, that women can't belong to. In August of 2012, the bastion of the old boys hideaway, the battered and beaten wall of the all-male golf club finally cracks open. Today, the biggest glass ceiling in sports was smashed. For their part, both former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and South Carolina business executive Darla Moore were quite gracious today as they broke into the boys club, accepting their membership at Augusta National, a club filled with statesmen, CEOs, and America's So Augusta lets in two women. It's not exactly a female tidal wave, but think of its symbolic significance. The most famous golf club in the world had decided it could no longer be all male. Still, not everywhere followed suit. The very next year, the Open Championship was held at Muirfield in Scotland, the golf course of the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers, which did not permit women members. The all-male membership was a favorite topic of columnists that week, and the topic loomed over the tournament. The next year, in 2014, the RNA voted to admit women, reversing a male-only policy that lasted for 260 years. The Open was set to be held at St. Andrews the next year in 2015, and St. Andrews is the golf course associated with the RNA, and the move was widely seen as getting out ahead of the problem and preempting similar media coverage that plagued the Muirfield Open. Still, it's sort of amazing that the RNA remained male-only for so long. The RNA should have been open to women long before it was, because you know they were conducting tournaments for women. Um, same with the USGA. You know, you're, you can't be a governing body for men and women and exclude women from your organization. After the RNA made its stance clear, the attention shifted to the two other courses in the Open Championship rota that still had all male memberships. The first, Royal St George's, changed its rules just six months later. For more than a century, membership to the Royal St George's Golf Club in Sandwich has been a privilege reserved for men only, being one of just three clubs on the open rota with a male-only membership policy. However, following the results of a vote of members released today, all that is about to change. The next year, Muirfield, sensing the writing on the wall, called a similar member vote to propose admitting women. The vote would need two-thirds majority to change the rule, which was centuries old, and the vote failed. Just barely, but it failed. The RNA responded with this statement. 
The RNA has considered today's decision with respect to the Open Championship. The Open is one of the world's great sporting events, and going forward, we will not stage the championship at a venue that does not admit women as members. Here's Scottish golf writer John Huggin, an expert on all things RNA and Open Championship. For clubs like Ross and George's and Muirfield, you know, I think the Open, getting the Open was the was the key to all of this. There's a lot of money, obviously, involved in, in getting it being an Open Championship course, not just in terms of how much they get paid to host it, they get the guest fees that come piling in, you know, for the, in the 10 years or so between each Open. I mean, it's, you can only imagine how much money, uh, certainly Muirfield, they make a fortune out of being an Open Championship course, so it'd be a big blow to them financially. The following year, Muirfield, looking to get back in the Open picture, held another vote. The number of votes for the resolution is 498, or 80.2%. The number of votes against the resolution is 123, or 19.8%. So the rules of the club will be changed accordingly with immediate effect. And we look forward to welcoming women as members who will enjoy and benefit from the traditions and the friendship of this remarkable club. The four case studies that we've discussed, Augusta National, the RNA, Royal St. George's, and Muirfield, they all have something in common. It's pretty clear they made these changes somewhat reluctantly. Some might say they did so at the point of a bayonet, there didn't seem to be a moral awakening or a change of heart. These were responses to very real financial pressures. Augusta had its hands tied by the Ginny Rometty IBM situation and the lawsuits, while the RNA and the British clubs had a big problem with the Open Championship. Which makes the Pine Valley case that much more intriguing. Pine Valley does host the Crump Cup every year. It's an amateur tournament that's open to the public, but tickets are free. Pine Valley's not in the public eye the way Augusta or Muirfield is. So their decision and their justification for that decision, which you'll remember was being on the right side of history, struck a different tone. This was a private club comprised of business leaders and CEOs and very powerful men reading the room and doing so voluntarily. Last week, the club announced its three new women members, all of them accomplished players, and one in particular, Annika Sorenstam, among the best golfers in history. The question now is, what happens next? What happens to clubs like Burning Tree, like Butler National, like Preston Trail, that don't host tournaments and thus don't face the same external pressures that Augusta or Royal St. George's did? You know, the, the Hootie Johnson generation that grew up with 1950s housewives as their mom and they, you know, the women in their lives didn't work and they weren't really empowered. That generation is not of this earth for much longer. And when the guys who are now in their 40s and 50s start running those clubs and their daughters and their wives start asking questions and, and, and start saying, this is a little ridiculous. I think it's going to be harder for them to hold the line. I mean, there's the culture has changed so much that the, the guys who've been running these places are, are still a vestiges of a different era, but the people who are going to be in leadership positions at Preston Trail and at Burning Tree have come up in a completely different climate. They've worked along, alongside powerful women. They've probably worked for them. They have come to accept that women are going to be part of 
their corporate lives and uh, their philanthropic lives and everything else they do. Um, and I think they're gonna, there's gonna, the tide is gonna turn internally. We obviously saw it with Pine Valley. Perhaps it will turn, but at so many golf courses around the country, the boys club undertones still run strong. And you still feel it today. I mean, when I'm playing with guys I don't know very well, I'm always curious when the first semi-massages joke is going to come out on the golf course. It's always there. It's always coming. You know it. Another question is, is it too late? Has golf already stiff-armed women one too many times? Christine Brennan, the author of that column that sent shockwaves through Augusta National and beyond, she sure thinks so. Uh, golf put up a stop sign, well, certainly, you know, 50 years ago, but even up till 10 years ago, there was this, this neon red stop sign just blaring out to the world. Do not play golf, women. Do not play golf, girls. But these, these male-only clubs, the greatest capitalists among us chose sexism over capitalism. And I don't think they can get those years back because Title IX has been pumping these women out. That, as I said, that wave is, is washing over the country. And so what you've done now is all those women have gone to other sports. They're not gonna take up golf now. The numbers tell a slightly different story. Golf had an incredible 2020, social distancing and all that, and 450,000 women took up the game last year, these numbers are, per the National Golf Foundation. There are now 6 million on-course women golfers, which account for 24% of all on-course golfers, and women represent a disproportionately higher percentage of juniors, where they're 34%, and beginners, where they're 36%. We should also acknowledge that when we talk about all-male golf clubs, we're talking about maybe a dozen golf courses out of the 15,000 or so in the United States. An overwhelming, overwhelming majority of golf courses welcome women, and many are actively trying to recruit them to play the course or to join as members. The issue, then, isn't so much practical as it is symbolic. It's an image problem. It's not that women can't play golf if they want to. It's that they were sent a clear message for decades by some of the country's most elite clubs. And those memories, they stick. It's why, despite earnest efforts to modernize, golf is still caricaturized as the exclusive hangout of rich, elite men. And changing that is not as simple as removing a sign or handpicking a few women to be members of a club. But you have to start somewhere. And while this sport has never exactly been a fast mover, Clubs from Augusta to Royal St. George's to Pine Valley now recognize their clubs are too special and too important to be defined by who they don't let in the door. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. The music for today's episode is called Sleeping Dragons, and it's by Lobo Loco. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to download the episodes. That's a huge help. And leave us a review. Thanks a lot.